0: Good morning, and uh, scary Halloween Eve. So um, I'm sticking to it. It Should be scary Halloween, not happy Halloween. Because if you say happy birthday, and happy Valentine's Day, and happy Thanksgiving, and happy Easter, you cannot say happy Halloween. Uh, Whether or not you celebrate or do anything for Halloween, can't say happy Halloween. All right. So today, there you know, there's a national day for everything. So today is an interesting one. So um, today is a great create a great funeral day. If that uplifts anybody. Uh, Haunted refrigerator night. I'm not sure what that is. I didn't look it up, but it's haunted refrigerator night day today. Uh, Yes, that's what I said. What? Uh, it is Mischief Night t- day, today. Today, uh, National Candy Corn Day. Do Do people like candy corn? That has some. There's people cheering like back up here. I liked candy corn when I was a kid, but when I eat it now, it's like just sweet wax. It's uh, I don't get it. Um, and the best of all is that it's national or whatever, buy a donut day. All right, so I'll, I'll do that one. Yeah, we'll get some claps here. So if you not had a donut today, today is the day. If you never eat donuts, today's the day to eat the donut. Okay, let's get on to um, something more serious, which is the scripture reading. Colossians chapter four. Colossians chapter 4, starting in verse 10. Articus CF will do much better with that name. My fellow prisoner greets you with Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, about whom you received instructions. If he comes to you, welcome him. And Jesus, who is also called Justice, these are my only fellow workers for the kingdom of God who are of the circumcision, and they have proved to be a comfort to me. If you uh, are visiting with us this morning, we welcome you here. We'd love to hear from you. Uh, we're also excited to know that this is a church that preaches the word, and we've got a pastor who Amen. doesn't stop at the second to the last chapter of Scripture. But he reads through all the names and the greetings at the end uh, because they have meaning and they have purpose. And uh, we're blessed to be a part of a church that has leadership like that. Uh, Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for who you are. I thank you for your word. I thank you for your truth. And I pray, Lord, that that truth will be evident to us this morning, that you will speak to us through CF, through your word through things that happen today, that you will put us where you need us to be, where you want us to be, and that we will recognize you in response. And we say this in your name. Amen.
1: Good morning, everybody. Good to see you. Good to have you here. Welcome. You're visiting with us. We're going through the book of Colossians. And I'm on the fourth chapter. Today, as David read the scriptures, I'm going to be reading verses 10 and 11 The title of the message is Finishing Strong. And what Paul's doing here at the end of his letter to the church, he's recognizing the people that have assisted him in his ministry. And today we're going to look at three of them. Aristarchus, John Mark, and uh, Justice. Those three men. And they are each, all three different. Aristarchus stuck stuck with him through some very difficult times. Justice, we don't know a lot about him, but he's recognized as being faithful. And John Mark, uh, who defected from Paul early in his ministry, but he came back. And so all three of these guys, the end of the road here with Paul, Paul's recognizing them because they all finished with him. They all stayed strong. And that's gonna be the message today. Finish strong in the faith, no matter what comes along the way, finish strong. And there's great reward for that. So let's pray and we'll look at the passage. Father God, we come before your throne of grace, thanking you, Lord, for this day and opportunity. Praying, Lord, that you would enlighten us with your word, that you would direct me in my teaching of the word, keep me from error, help me to explain it clearly and accurately. And Lord, even in these passages here at the end of the chapter, we don't often read or look at. There's a message there that you have for us. Help us to see that message and understand it and apply it to our life, Lord. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. As we look here, we begin with the first one. He says, "Aristicus, my fellow prisoner, greets you with Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, about whom you received instruction, if he comes to you, to welcome him, and Jesus who is called Justice. Now the name Jesus was a very common name in that day and time. But when we hear Jesus, we think of one Jesus. But there was many people that had that name in that time. His nickname was Justice. That's what they called him. These are my only fellow workers for the kingdom of God who are of the circumcision. They have proved to be a comfort to me. So these three men right here, he says, are of the circumcision. What that means is it means they're Jewish believers. They were Jewish believers that stuck with him. The vast majority of people that worked with Paul were, tended to be Gentiles that were with him. But these three are Jewish people. And they're with Paul as, he, as he's in prison in Rome, writing this letter to the church in Colossae. And the church in Colossae may have had some Jewish converts in there, but by and large they were Gentiles. And by and large, the culture in which they lived in was dominated by Greek philosophy, Greek ideas, Greek spirituality, even though it was a Roman uh, government in charge. Because when Rome took over areas, they didn't really care what people. Romans were basically agnostic or atheist. They didn't really care that much about what people worshipped. They would worship some of the Greek gods, things such as that, but they weren't real big on that. And when they conquered an area, they let them practice their religion. They didn't really care. It wasn't that important to them. They thought the Romans viewed it as a waste of time. Uh, But the culture was very corrupt that they lived in, very evil culture. And uh, if you had listened to people in Paul's day and time, they'd be talking much like people today. Can you believe how rotten this culture is getting? Folks, that's been the case with man since the beginning of time nothing new. Don't be shocked by culture becoming corrupt. What's shocking is that you see it in America where America was once uh, held in restraint to a great extent uh, by the Christian faith. People had a Christian ethic. Even if they were not Christian in faith, they held to the moral standards of the Christian faith. And you saw a much more moral society. But as you see the influence of the Christian church diminishing in our society, you will see an increase that will fill the gap of corruption and evil. Uh, And it goes in cycles like that. It's not the first time this has happened in our nation. It's happened before. And then God was gracious in that he sent uh, great awakenings, he sent revival to the land, things such as that. And you see the cycle turn back the other direction. Will it turn this time? Time will tell. We've got to do our part, though. We've got to stand against the influence of evil uh, in, in our society. We've got to stand against the influence of evil in our personal life and in our families, for sure. And take a strong stand for what is right. But be light and salt in the world. And share the grace of God with others. Demonstrate the grace of God. Live your life in such a way that people would ask What is it that makes you tick? Why are you so different? That's how you want to live your life. That's how you want to be. So Paul addresses these three Jewish believers uh, that are are with him, that are very uh, faithful men of the faith. The first one is Aristarchus. Aristarchus' name means best ruler. That is actually a Greek name given to a Jewish man. He first appeared during Paul's three years at Ephesus, uh, when Paul founded the church at Ephesus. He founded Ephesus, and then Colossian or Colossae is about 100 miles east of there, and that's who he's writing this letter to. So there's a lot of similarities between those two. It'd be about like going from here to, I don't know, Houston, something like that, maybe a little further, uh, maybe going down to Baytown, something like that. They were very close. The cities were close together. Uh, And so their culture, their their lifestyles were very similar. Colossae, along with Ephesus, were centered in what is modern-day Turkey today. Okay? At that time, they were Greek city-states. And so he speaks of Aristarchus because Aristarchus went with him on his first journey. If you'll look in Acts 19, we'll see the first mention of Aristarchus He's mentioned, if you'll look at it, in the, in the uh, 29th verse, he says, the whole city was filled with confusion and rushed into the theater with one accord, having seized Gaius and Aristicus, Macedonians, Paul's traveling companion. That's the first mention of him there. Well, what's happening there in Ephesus? Well, what's happening is Paul goes to the city of Ephesus. It says so in verse 1 of the 19th chapter. It says, It happened while Apollos was at Corinth that Paul, having passed through the upper regions, came to Ephesus and found some disciples there. And then we go through this whole story. But Paul began performing miracles in Ephesus in verse 11. uh, And many people were healed. And there were many evil spirits uh, delivered from people, verse fourteen said there were seven sons of Siva, a Jewish chief priest who did so. And the evil spirits answered and said, "Jesus, I know, and Paul know, but who are you?" And the same man and who the evil spirit was leaped on him, overpowered him, and prevailed against him, so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. This became known both the Jews and Greeks dwelling in Ephesus, and fear fell upon them all. In the name of the Lord Jesus was magnified. And many who had believed came confessing and telling their deeds. Also, many of those who practice magic, that's witchcraft is what that is. Brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted up the value of them and it totaled 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord grew mightily and prevailed. You think about this, folks, Paul is invading uh, the evil culture there with just himself and just a few other people with him and taking a bold stand. When these things were accomplished, Paul purposed in the spirit when he had passed through Macedonia and Achaea, to go to Jerusalem saying, After I've been there, I must also see Rome. So he went into Macedonia. Two of those who uh, ministered to him, Timothy and Erastus, uh, but he himself stayed in Asia for a time. And about that time, there arose a great commotion about the way. And that is a synonym for the Christian church or for the Christian faith, the way. That's, that's one of the uh, ways they referred to it. For a certain man named Demetrius, a silversmith who made silver shrines of Diana, brought no small profit to the craftsmen. He called them together with the workers of similar occupation and said, men, you know that we have our prosperity by this trade. Moreover, you see and hear that not only at Ephesus, but throughout almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned many people, saying that they are not gods which are made with hands. So not only is this trade of ours in danger of falling into disrepute, but also the temple of the great goddess Diana may be despised. And her magnificence destroyed whom all of Asia and the world worship. And when they heard this, they were full of wrath. And they cried out saying, great is Diana of the Ephesians. So the whole city was filled with confusion and rushed into the theater with one accord, having seized Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians, Paul's traveling companion. And when Paul wanted to go in to the people, he's going to tell them, hey, let my guys go. Look what they tell him. The disciples would not allow him. Why wouldn't they allow him? People were about to kill him. It was a riot is what it was. When he says there was great confusion, a commotion, What you're looking at is a full-blown riot. This guy Demetrius got up and he emboldened all the people and said, hey, Paul is about to destroy our temple here. He's about to destroy all that we hold dear. Not to mention, he's about to destroy our job of building idols, silver idols. And so the people got all fired up and they run into the temple and they took Aristarchus and Gaius hostage And they go through a great turmoil. They eventually get released. But Aristarchus, after this event, stayed with Paul. He went on his advance party to Troas. Then he went with Paul to Rome in Acts 27, 4. And then we come here in Colossians, and Paul refers to him as his fellow prisoner. Look at your passage there in 4. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greet you. That word fellow prisoner is a long compound word, it comes from two major words that you see on the screen there, sun meaning together, and archmalotos, which means prisoner of war. They're prisoners of war together. What war? Spiritual war, folks. That's what it is. Spiritual battle that they were fighting. They're companions there. And Aristicus is a picture of a person that no matter what happens in life, he sticks with what he started with. That's the kind of guy right there you want with you. If you were going into a city to preach, you got a guy in the name of Aristarchus that was attacked by a mob in the midst of a riot, taken hostage, and yet he still wants to travel with Paul. Understanding fully all the danger involved in it. That is a man that sticks with someone through thick and thin. No matter how tough it gets, he goes through it all. And every one of us knows people like that. We know people who wouldn't back down, they'd die before they quit. That's what Aristarchus is. I'm going to jump over John Mark because I want to focus on him. But you go to the next one down in verse 11, and it says, "In Jesus, who is called justice, these are my fellow workers for the kingdom of God, who are of the circumcision. They have proved to be a comfort to me. So in justice, what you have is you got a faithful worker that there's not a whole lot of history about. You just don't know a whole lot about him. And I view this guy as being the type of person that comes alongside someone in ministry, and yet they don't ever get much recognition. He gets this one little spot in here where Paul mentions his name, but he is still considered a faithful worker. So some people will fall into the category of Aristarchus where they're right in the middle of the mix and everyone knows who they are and they have a history with them of faithfulness. And then you've got people just like Justice here who are just faithful servants that kind of sit in the shadows that don't get a lot of the limelight. And then the third group of people that you have are people like Mark right here in verse 10. Look at it. Aristicus, my fellow prisoner, greet you with Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, about whom you received instruction, if he comes to you, welcome him. So Paul's telling the church here, Mark comes, welcome him. And then uh, he says at the end there, they have proved to be a comfort to me. Now Mark is a different category than Aristarchus, and he's a different category than Justice. Because Mark started out with Paul in the ministry And when things got a little bit rocky, he bugged out on them, uh, defected. Okay, that's the proper word. If you want to see that, turn to Acts chapter 13, and we'll look at that story. Because it's going to play in big with what Paul's saying about him. Acts 13, 5. Let's go there. It says, and when they arrived in Salamis, they preached the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews. They also had John as their assistant. His name is John Mark. He's referred to as John, he's referred to as Mark, but he's also referred to as John Mark uh, in some places. So I want you to see that, that these, these are all speaking of the same person. And when they go up in here and they start doing ministry, Paul runs into a sorcerer in verse 8. A witch doctor. Now look what he says: But Elemas, the sorcerer, for so his name is translated, withstood them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. Then Saul, who is called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him and said, O full of all deceit, all fraud, you son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, will you not cease perverting the straight ways of the Lord? And now indeed the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you shall be blind, not seeing the sun for a time. And immediately a dark mist fell on him, and he went around seeking someone to lead him by the hand. Then the proconsul believed. I think I would. Uh, the little rebel leader just got blinded. He said, where are y'all going to say We're on board, Paul. We're you. We're with you, brother. We're riding with you. And don't worry about it, man. Leave my eyes alone. And when he saw what had been done, being astonished at the teaching of the Lord. Now, when Paul and his party set sail from Paphos, they came to Perga and Pamphylia. And John, departing from them, returned to Jerusalem. You know, John Mark said, I've had all this I need, man. I'm out of here. I'm gone. He sees controversy starting to build. Paul's starting to get confronted by people, and John Mark leaves for whatever specific reason. Scripture doesn't tell us, but he did depart. He left, and he left them behind. And then you're gonna see something that happens in chapter 15 of Acts. Turn to chapter 15, and look with me at verse 36. Then after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, let us now go back and visit our brethren in every city where we preach the word of the Lord and see how they are doing. So what they had done, they had gone through that whole region, converts in all these cities, started churches, and he says, all right, we're finished this journey. Let's go back and check on all these people and do some follow-up on them. Then so Barnabas said, hey, that sounds good. Now Barnabas was determined to take with them John called Mark. This is the individual we've been talking about. Remember, what did John Mark do? He left. When things started getting tough, he left on the front end. He left them high and dry. I don't know what his specific job was, but he had some kind of task that he had to do with them, um, helping them with equipment or whatever they had, and he defected, that makes it harder on them. So when they said that, when Barnabas said that, Verse 38 said, Paul insisted that they should not take with them the one who had departed from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. In other words, Paul says, no, we're not taking John. John left. He's a quitter. He's no good. He defected. Uh Uh-uh. That ain't happening. Then it says, then the contention became so sharp that they parted from one another. They went their separate ways. Steve Perry sang about it with Journey years ago. But they separated. They went two opposite directions. They busted apart. But listen to what it says. A sharp contention. They got got face to face. They almost went to blows is what happened. They almost went to blows with each other. And it got serious. And so they said, all right, Barnabas, you go that way. I'll go this way. They departed, and then it says, "But Paul chose Silas and departed, being commended by the brethren to the grace of God." So Paul and Barney getting a fight over John Mark because John Mark defected he was viewed as no good. Paul says, "Let him go." Something happened between this time period and the end of Paul's life, and you know what happened. John Mark came back. John Mark was viewed as a failure because of his departure, but he came back. I think Peter might have played a role in his returning. If you look in 1 Peter chapter 5, there is a mention of him there. 1 Peter chapter 5, and in verse 13, it, uh, Peter's speaking, and he says, She who is in Babylon elect together with you, greet you, and so does Mark, my son. Another reference to him there. But Peter refers to him as his son. Now this is opinion. My opinion is this. When John Mark defected, he probably went and saw Peter, ran into Peter, because where did he go? He went to Jerusalem. Where was Peter? Jerusalem. And so he probably met up with Peter, Peter, I'm thinking disciplining. him. I think John Mark confessed of his failure and John Mark came back stronger. John Mark came back so strong. Look at 2 Timothy. Look over at 2 Timothy real quick. If I can find it here. 2 Timothy, the fourth chapter. I'm going to show you something there. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 9. He says, be diligent to come to me quickly, for Demas has forsaken me, having loved this present world and has departed for Thessalonica, Crescents for Galatia, Titus for Dalmatia, only Luke is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you, for he is useful to me for the ministry. Woo, look at that. At the end of Paul's life, He's asking for Timothy, and he's asking for Mark. He's going to ask for the parchments and his cloak. That's who he wants. A guy that had failed so bad, Paul got in a fight with Barnabas over him and said, I don't want the guy coming along with us, man. He's no good. Let him go. Now at the end of his life, he says, bring him to me. As Paul's in his jail cell, the very end of his life, because after he wrote that book, He was executed. Paul was beheaded. And the very last thing he's asking in his life is send Mark to me. To show you how much Mark was restored, there are only four men that wrote Gospels in the Bible and John Mark wrote one of them. When you think about that, man, a guy that had totally blown it comes back and has a high and key place in the ministry for the Lord, and importance to Paul himself. If you look there at the book of Colossians in our passage there in the fourth chapter, he says this about about Mark. He says, these, verse 11, these are my only fellow workers for the kingdom of God who are of the circumcision. They have proved to be a comfort for me. At one time, Mark was a a bone of contention for Paul. Now he's become a comfort. You know what that shows me in Scripture? It doesn't matter how bad you mess up in life, if you're intent on your relationship with God and you come to God and confess and get your heart right, God still uses people like that. God still uses people like that. People may throw you away, and people may say you're no good, But when you read the Bible, you're going to see that God, many times, those are the very people He uses. God uses those people for His kingdom. And Mark is a picture of how God uses people that fail, and ends up writing a gospel using them. That's amazing when you think about that. But when you look at the Bible, almost every great person in Scripture, and definitely those that are written about In the the book of Hebrews chapter 11, those people of faith, many of those people failed. You think of Noah and people think of him building an ark, but if you read about him, Noah got drunk. Many people would have discarded Noah in our day and time. Abraham lied, Jacob cheated, Moses killed, and he also complained against God. Rahab was a harlot, David was an adulterer, Jonah fled, Thomas Doubted, Peter denied him, but Jesus restored him. See, that's where God is. God is in the work of restoration. And you cannot let failure in your service to God. You can't do that. And many times what we do is we put, our put ourselves on a shelf when God doesn't do that with us. If you're humble in your approach God will still use you in life. Don't consider failure to be final. How can failure be good? You know, failure can be good in life. How can it be good? Failure can work to bring you closer to God. Many times when you fall, you'll realize that the only friend you've got is God. Because a lot of times people will leave you. They will depart from you. Another thing is this, failure can be used to break the pride in our life. Failure will crush pride. Many times we think we're bulletproof, we think that'll never happen to me, I'm not going to fail, I'm not going to fall. And then when we do, it works to break that pride in our heart. We get prideful and arrogant a lot of times and think that we can do it and we're doing it on our own. And when we get like that, God will bring us to test. And when God breaks pride in your heart, you learn humility. Yes, failure will help you learn humility. Because when you fail, like I said before, many times people don't forget it. But God forgives it. And that's what you need to understand. You learn life lessons through failure. You're tested and refined through failure. You learn how to handle life with dignity through failure. See, many times when people fail, they label themselves as a failure. But if you rightly understand failure, you're not a failure. See, failure used in that sense as a noun. Describes a character. Whether you stay a failure is a choice you make. It's a decision that you make. But if you will confess that failure and look to God, God can restore you. And God can use you, as He did John Mark, to become useful to the very person that didn't want you to start with. He turns the whole thing around and He puts him in a position where Paul, at the end of his life, says, bring John Mark to me. He talks to the church at Colossae, he says, I'm sending John Mark to you. One that was unfaithful and unprofitable is now profitable, just like Onesimus. His whole story turns around. And that's the kind of God that we serve. We serve a God that is willing to give people a second chance when you exercise humility. When you exercise humility and you confess your sin, you can move forward. God uses failure to get our attention. He also will often use failure to fuel our future success. If you remember where you fell and how God restored you and you hate the taste of failure, you never want to taste that again. And that will drive you to remain faithful from a human perspective. The next thing is, Many times, the bigger the failure, the greater the rebound. That's all possible with God. See, with God, all things are possible. God can bring about things that you could never imagine that are far outside of your mind, your ability to comprehend. And what you have to do after failure is you have to make sure you get your feet on solid ground and keep moving in that direction. Because as long as you're alive and as long as God is granting you breath for life, God has a purpose for you here on earth. When God's purpose for you here on earth is over, you're going to go in His presence. And so if you let failure stop you, that's on you. That's on you. Because you are choosing to live in your past. Don't live in your past. Live in the present and in the future, which belong to the Lord. Amen. If you're walking with Him, Amen. that's the hope that the Scripture gives us: is that there's victory in, in our relationship with Christ when we exercise humility, when we walk in a manner that's pleasing to the Lord, and we draw near to Him. What does Scripture say? He draws near to us. When Moses failed in his ministry, Moses didn't quit. Moses got up and kept going. When David failed, David didn't quit. David got up and kept going. When all these people, look at Peter. Peter denied the Lord three times. Departed from the faith. Went back to his old job and was fishing. And Jesus came up to him and told him, He said, feed my lambs. Feed my sheep. Go back to what I told you to do and get faithful, Peter. In Peter's mind, he was done. He was over with. He failed. He couldn't do it. But with God, he says, I'm going to use you, Peter. He ended up using Peter to plant the New Testament church with Paul. Peter and Paul were the two great missionaries of the early church in its very founding. Matter of fact, God raised Peter up to preach the first sermon after the day of Pentecost. Peter strolled into that city. Many of those people had seen his failure. But he didn't let his failure identify him or define him. He let his relationship with Christ define him. And it says he preached boldly. And thousands of people came to faith on his first message that he preached. God uses failures. And so it's important for us to understand this way. Finish the race strong. Finish your race in the faith strong and keep your eyes focused on the Lord, walking in humility, trust in Him. Because every one of us falls in one of those three categories. You're either an Aristicus that's a, a fighter in the middle of the fire. You stay faithful. Nothing's going to stop you. You can get taken hostage in a riot, whooped all to pieces, and you're going to bounce up and go with Paul again, get thrown in jail with him. Or you can be a justice that's a faithful servant that people don't know a whole lot about, but they stay faithful. Or you can be a John Mark, one that fails, rebounds, comes back, much stronger than when he was the first time. But the key is this, stay faithful to the end. Stay faithful to the end because God is worthy of our faithfulness. Be faithful to the end. Be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. That's the key to the Christian life. Finish strong. Let's pray. Father God, we come before you, and we thank you that you are a God of a second chance and multiple chances. If we will come to you humbly and confess, you restore, you empower, and you can move mountains. And for that, God, we are truly grateful. Father, there are many before me that would be honest, and they would admit, I failed. I have really messed up. But God, I pray that they would come to you and would confess that humbly before you and that you would empower them and fill them and use them mightily in the service of your kingdom and for your purposes, God. I do pray that. I pray, Father, that we would all finish strong, that we would stay in the race, that we would fight to the end to do our part, whatever that may be, and it's going to vary. But let us stay faithful to the end, let us be found faithful to the end. And Father, I ask this of you in Christ's name. Amen.